The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. July 7th, 2020. Half a millennium ago today, July 7th, 1520. 500 Spanish troops plus a few civilian men and women managed to defeat a vast Aztec army in the Battle of Otumba. Uh, that's uh, what's today is Mexico. Uh, the Aztecs had no idea how to respond to Castilian cavalry charges. 250 years ago today, July 7th, 1770, Catherine the Great's forces won two decisive battles in the Russo-Turkish War. One on land, the Battle of Lager. One at sea, the Battle of Chesma. Neither went well for the Ottomans. On the other hand, 40 years ago today... July 7th, 1980, a good day for the Mohammedans. Sharia law was introduced in Iran, uh, where just a few years earlier, uh, the Shah had invited the famous one-eyed Jewish Negro Sammy Davis Jr. to perform. Sometimes there were no decisive battles, no grand transformative acts. Sometimes... It's like Hemingway said, how did you go broke first, gradually, then suddenly? How did you go civilizationally broke first, very gradually, but then it suddenly started to feel like we were approaching the suddenly phase. I'm trying to stay away from radio and TV because every time I switch it on, it's like I'm living in a particularly ludicrous fantasy, Rachel Dolezal meets the invasion of the body snatchers. The screens are full of surly, aggressive white women purporting to be the authentic face of blackness while insisting that all other white women are just avatars of privilege and terror and should piss off out of it. From the BBC, the BBC, a show called No Country for Young Women, in which the non-white hostess asks the two white chicks if they can explain why white women are so bloody awful. My first question to ladies today is, how can white women not be Karens? Educate yourself. Read some books so that you are aware of the histories and of, of white people and race. I think as well, like... Just try not to be defensive about things and particularly try not to be defensive about your whiteness. So I think a lot of the time when women are, women are Karens, it's because they are completely unwilling to accept that their whiteness is a privilege. And, you know, they want they want instead to be treated um, in a special way because they're women or they or they feel like they don't want to kind of interrogate how what how how their behaving might be racist or what they're doing is problematic. So I think like you have to be you have to be ready to think critically about your identity and your privilege and yeah and that's really important yeah and don't be so loud like stop stop shouting and stop attacking black voices and, and instead you should be uplifting them mm -hmm. yeah get out of the way basically yeah basically leave <laughs> yeah, you ghastly white women, don't be so loud, stop attacking, get out of the way so that white women like us can attack you on behalf of black people. I like the recommendation to read books about white people. Uh, Churchill's 
history of the English-speaking peoples. Uh, and I like the way one of the white gals is all abstract and theoretical, uh, interrogate your behavior because that can be problematic, while the other one is out there at the sharp end. Shut up. Basically leave. We are moving from the attenuated abstractions and the dead, desiccated language of the white privilege studies class to something less abstract and more physical. Uh, here's one of this spring's Harvard graduates, the best and brightest, Clara Janova, raised in the Tonier quarters of Connecticut, explaining why she can't abide the racist dog whistle, All Lives Matter. The next person who has the sheer nerve to say all lives matter, I'm going to stab you. I'm going to show you my paper cut and say, say, my cut matters too. Okay, okay, she's making an analogy. I'll give her that, albeit sounding a wee bit over-invested in it, psychologically speaking, uh, especially for a psychology uh, major, or in fact, government and psychology, whatever the hell that is. But the analogy is grotesque. Uh, I'm not stabbing black people and then whining that it's no worse than my paper cut. Uh, I'll look after my own paper cuts because they're self-inflicted. And in fact, uh, the people stabbing and shooting black people are overwhelmingly other black people. The Glorious Fourth in Chicago, a seven-year-old black girl dead just because the black family's driving through the wrong intersection when a black hoodlum opens fire. In a great American city, the black neighborhoods are like Mogadishu. Not Mogadishu now, by the way, when it's all very low-key, but Mogadishu in one of its crappier times. But the seven-year-old girl's black life doesn't matter to Miss Janova because it affords no way to get at Whitey. Her tickety-tock went a bit more viral than she'd intended, uh, and as a result, uh, for uh, her analogy about uh, stabbing everybody who says all lives matter, she lost the hotshot job she lined up post-Harvard. And as we all know, it's only supposed to be the right-wing haters who get cancelled. The job that I had worked really hard to get <laughs> and meant a lot to me. Those called me and fired me because of everything. Um... I don't know if everyone's seen, but it's been circulating a lot. Um, my Black Lives Matter TikToks were picked up by conservatives and spread and shared. And people were demanding that I be fired, which I, I just got. My job that I worked really hard for. Well, I was interested to know what fancy schmancy job she was about to take up. And it turned out to be with Deloitte's. Uh, that's an accountancy firm, one of the biggest on the planet. But still, they're accountants. Miss Janova aspired to be a social justice accountant. And granted, we live in an age of woke pop stars and woke politicians and woke vicars, woke businessmen, woke American football team owners and woke duchesses of Sussex, but woke accountants? Oh, Mr. Antrovy, <laughs> do sit down. Thank you. Take the weight off the feet, eh? Yes, yes. <laughs> Lovely weather for the time of year, I must say. Enough of this gay banter. And now, Mr. Andrew, <laughs> you asked us to advise you which job in life you were best suited for. That is correct, yes. Well, I now have the results here of the interviews and the aptitude test that you took last week, and from them we've built up a pretty clear picture of the sort of person that you are. And I think I can say without fear of contradiction that the ideal job for you is chartered accountancy. But I am a chartered accountant. Darling, <laughs> good. Well, back to the office with you, then. <laughs> no, no, no! You don't understand. I've been a chartered accountant for the last 20 years. I want a new job. 
Something exciting that will let me live. Well, Charlotte, the is rather exciting, isn't it? Exciting? No, it's not. It's dull. 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 My God, it's dull. Well, uh, yes, Mr. Angevy, but you see, uh, your report here says that you are an extremely dull person. <laughs> Isn't accountancy just the ultimate white man's racket? What's more racist than making the other fellow reconcile his books? But not for Clara Janova, the revolutionary accountant-in-waiting. Keir Starmer is leader of the British Labour Party and thus leader of Her Majesty's loyal opposition. He recently characterised the mostly peaceful protests of Black Lives Matter as a moment, with the implication that moments pass. And he additionally observed that talk about defunding the police is, quote, nonsense. As well he might. Sir Keir made his name as Director of Public Prosecutions. That's to say, he charges people with crimes and attempts to get them banged up in jail. That's one reason he was made Labour leader after the Corbyn years, under a chap who's been on the side of the IRA and Hamas his entire life. The party thought they might fare better under someone a little more moderate. Unfortunately for the new leader, defunding the police is the moderate position, so the mob was outraged by his remarks. And thus, a chastened Sir Keir found himself on the radio this weekend volunteering for re-education class for disrespecting BLM. Would you consider having unconscious bias training or updated train unconscious bias training in view of that comment? Sharon, on the second point you raised, which is really important about unconscious bias training, in the Labour Party we are introducing that for all of our staff um, and I'm going to start, I'm going to lead from the top on this and do that training first. So I think it's very important that we do. We, we took a decision to introduce across the Labour Party um, and I think that's the right thing to do and I think I should lead by example by doing it first. How long is the course, Sir Keir? It's about uh, two or three hours. And when will you be doing it? I'll do it as soon as I can book in for it. If you think that's ridiculous, Mike Gundy, the coach of the Oklahoma State football team, I forget what they're called, uh, the Oklahoma Snowflakes, the Oklahoma Nancys, the Oklahoma Pansies, I forget what it is. Uh, Mike Gundy, their coach, recently agreed to take a $1 million pay cut because... He committed the crime of wearing a T-shirt for the One America Network, the shirt heard round the world. Racism is now like climate change. If it's boiling hot, that's climate change. If it's freezing cold, that's climate change. If it's 53 and partly cloudy with a chance of light showers, that's climate change. Likewise, if you're in favour of segregation and you miss Bull Connor, you're a racist. If you regard segregation as evil and you marched with Dr King, you're a racist who's unaware of your unconscious bias. And if you aced unconscious bias class, that just shows how deep your unconscious racism goes. Before lockdown turned to looting, Lionel Shriver wrote a column on a rather America Alone type theme. Why the entire Western world was so fearful over COVID that it shut down everything uh, that made life worth living and sheltered in place for the last four months. Uh, as I'd caused to observe many years ago, man has his seven ages and so does society. The young take chances, the old value prudence and caution. And Western societies are older than they've ever been 
and behave accordingly. As Lionel put it, with safety as a prime directive, Serranus Shackleton would never have come anywhere near the South Pole because he might have got cold. David Livingstone would have found Victoria Falls only in order to wash his hands in it. Sir Francis Drake could never have set sail because rubberized non-slip decking had yet to be invented. Winston Churchill would certainly not have sanctioned Dunkirk because someone might have got hurt. Given how popular this domestic pastime has proved during lockdown, Sir Ranulph Fiennes would surely have spurned Mount Everest for the staircase in his house. After taking a course in proper stair-climbing technique from his local council, donning knee pads and a crash helmet, and stopping for frequent water breaks to remain hydrated. Anyone who lives to grow old has a sense, to one degree or another, of cultural dislocation. You go into a salon de thé, hoping there'll be a palm court trio playing We'll Gather Lilacs, but instead they've got the hip-hop station on. When the entire Western world grows old and is barren, the sense of cultural dislocation is profound. We live with the consequences of half a century of transformative immigration. In a couple of decades' time, America will be the first majority white country to become majority non-white. Um, that's supposed not to matter, uh, because culture and values reign supreme. The fact that Sweden will be a land shorn of Swedes is irrelevant, because simply by setting foot on Swedish soil, all those Syrian refugees will magically adopt Swedish mores. To say this is unutterably stupid is an insult to as straightforward a concept as stupidity, of which more anon. But it is also clear that... Western nations have completely failed, even if you believe this theory, have completely failed to transmit those cultural values to the next generation, uh, even of the native born. Indeed, the next generation is ashamed of those values. So that generation has looked elsewhere and seen the future. A majority of Americans under 16 are already non-white. Uh, between immigrants who have never been asked to assimilate and young Americans raised to revile their inheritance, why would you expect Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln to mean anything to them? For a large proportion of the young, it's not their history. Any more than when you move into a house, you're particularly interested in who was living there in 1948 or 1873. And for those old stock Westerners, signing up with the statue topplers is no more than a recognition of basic arithmetic. Look at the descendants of Jefferson and Churchill telling the papers that, yes, grandpa, great-great-grandpa had a good run, but it's time to move on and take down the statues. Lockdown and looting, lockdown and looting. Old people so fearful because they intuit that in some sense our societies are dying. And young people so brazen because they reckon our societies are already dead and they've moved on. The March of the Morons never sleeps, Timber! It's Mark Stein's Statue of the Night. You put me high upon a 
a confederate general, a Spanish conquistador, a slaveholding founding father. No, he was a black man, an escaped slave from the South, who became leader of the abolitionist movement in the North and one of the most celebrated orators of his day. Stanley Edwards' statue of him, erected in Rochester, New York, in 1899, was the first ever statue in the United States depicting a real-life individual black American, as opposed to, say, the generic representation of non-specific slaves in the Emancipation Memorials. That would seem surely to be of historic significance, uh, a symbol that, to coin a phrase, black lives matter. Uh, at its initial unveiling, the mayor of Rochester, George Warner, declared that it is fitting that it should stand near a great portal of our city, where thousands who enter may see that she is willing to acknowledge to the world that her most illustrious citizen was not a white man. But none of that was enough to prevent Frederick Douglass being ripped from his plinth in Maplewood Park, a stop on the Underground Railroad where Douglas and Harriet Tubman helped escaped slaves on the final leg of their journey to freedom in Canada. The statue was found about 50 feet away in the Genesee River Gorge, not destroyed completely, but sufficiently damaged that it cannot be put back on its base and a replacement will have to take its place. The toppling took place... 168 years to the day from one of Douglas's most famous speeches given in Rochester in 1852. What to the slave is the 4th of July, but what to the march of the morons is Frederick Douglas? Cornell Brooks, president of the NAACP, thinks the statue was removed as retaliation for the toppling of all the other statues, Columbus, Washington, Lincoln, Francis Scott Key, he could be right. It seems awfully complacent to expect provocations never to provoke. What's the shortest distance between the erection of a statue and denunciations of it? Last year in Plymouth, Theresa May uh, unveiled a statue of Viscountess Astor, Nancy Astor was an American who crossed the Atlantic and became the first female MP to take her seat in the House of Commons. Countess Markovitz, uh, the fiery Irish radical, was the first to be elected, but she never actually showed up, A, because she was a Shinner, and Sinn Féin never take their seats at Westminster, and B, because she was in Holloway Prison at the time. Uh, so Lady Astor was an important first in parliamentary history, and upon the centenary of her election, many women's groups helped crowdfund the costs of her statue. The word Nazi has now been sprayed across the pedestal just seven months after Mrs. May unveiled it. Is that a record? Or has some poor unfortunate fellow whose monument was inaugurated in the early spring already been torn down? Year zero in the land of empty plinths. 
Perhaps they could all be repurposed as communal cell phone charging stations. Uh, 5G outposts for Huawei. Can't get enough of America's undocumented anchorman? SteinOnline.com is your one-stop shop for all things Stein. Catch new episodes of The Mark Stein Show. Sit back and experience features like Stein's Song of the Week and Mark Stein's Tales for Our Time. Get the most of Stein Online by joining the Mark Stein Club, a global community of people just like you. The show never stops for members of the Mark Stein Club. Head on over to steinonline.com club for details. The Mark Stein Club presents The Hundred Years Ago Show. The death of an empress, a Jewish governor for Palestine, and burned at the stake in Texas. It's July 1920. A hundred years from today. news update, the mopping up operations of the Great War continue. His Majesty King Christian X has ratified the Danish-German Treaty, under which the northern part of the German Duchy of Schleswig will become the Danish province of Schleswig. In a plebiscite in two regions of the Free State of Prussia, voters rejected the opportunity to join Poland. Uh, The former German town of Valk has been partitioned between Estonia, which gets most of the city, now to be known as Valga, and Latvia, which gets the southern suburbs now to be known as Valka. The Austro-Hungarian town of Limburg, latterly occupied by Poland, which had renamed it Lvov, has been captured by the Red Army and Ukrainian Bolsheviks, who between them have driven out Polish troops and Ukrainian non-Bolsheviks. Poland's army has also been ejected from Minsk by Soviet troops and Belarusian Bolsheviks. Soviet Russia has recognized the independence of Lithuania, thereby ending the Soviet-Lithuanian War. The Allied Conference at Brussels has agreed to divide up German war reparations as follows. The first 8% to Belgium, 52% to France, 22% to Britain, 5.5% to Serbia, 4% apiece to Italy, Portugal and Japan. The government in Berlin has agreed to reduce the size of its army after a threat from British Prime Minister Lloyd George to send troops across the Rhine to occupy Germany. Practicing Jew to serve in a British cabinet and the first to hold one of the great offices of state, that of Home Secretary, Sir Herbert Samuel has arrived in Jaffa to take up his duties as the first British High Commissioner for Palestine. He will be the first Jew to govern the historic land of Israel in 2,000 years. The current military administrator, Field Marshal Viscount Allenby, is said to regard the appointment as unwise and has predicted widespread violence by Muslims and Arabs in reaction to what is seen as the dawn of a permanent Zionist administration. 
On Dominion Day, Sir Robert Borden stunned Canadians by resigning as Prime Minister and announcing plans to rename his Unionist ministry as the National Liberal and Conservative Party. Sir William Thomas White has declined an invitation to form a government from the Duke of Devonshire, the Governor-General, and so Canada's new Prime Minister and the youngest in the country's history will be Mr Arthur Meehan. Mr Meehan has the distinction of having shepherded through the largest piece of legislation anywhere in the British Empire, the consolidation of various bankrupt entities into the new Canadian National Railways. In the United States, the Democrats finally have a presidential candidate. After 44 ballots, Governor James Cox emerged victorious. His vice presidential nominee will be the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Franklin D. Roosevelt. In Paris, Texas, a mob broke into the courthouse jail and dragged out two Negro brothers, Irving and Herman Arthur, accused of killing their landlord and his son. The men were then taken to the county fairgrounds, where both were burned at the stake. Sheriff Clarkson has declared one of the two dead Negroes, quote, not the right one, and says he is also doubtful whether the second man was the right party. Californians be allowed to marry Japanese persons. George Shima, president of the Japanese Association of America, thinks they should. The Golden State's famous potato king, estimated to account for about 85% of California potato production, Mr. Shima began his life in America as a domestic servant in San Francisco. Notwithstanding his great success, he has suffered prejudice in the state. An attempt to buy property in Berkeley was opposed by city realtors and generated such newspaper headlines as, quote, yellow peril in college town. Nevertheless, George Shima thinks intermarriage between Japanese and Americans should be permitted. There may be objections now, he told the California legislature, but a hundred years from now we will look back upon it as all right. He added, however, that, Quote, a good many Japanese don't make enough money to support Yankee girls. They are too expensive. adventures in the land of Oz have come to an end. The 14th and final instalment of L. Frank Baum's series called Glinda of Oz has been published posthumously, a year after the author's death. It is hard to recall now the phenomenal popularity of Oz in print and on the Broadway stage. Mr. Baum kept trying to repeat the success of the original 1902 musical production and lost a lot of money. 
Attempts to transfer the characters to the silver screen likewise failed, until the author himself was forced to acknowledge that the Oz name had become toxic. Lord Fisher has died in London, a widely admired reforming first sea lord. He is credited with modernising the British fleet to ensure that when war with Germany came, the Royal Navy would be ready. The last Empress of the French has died while visiting her kinsman, the Duke of Alba, in Madrid. Empress Eugenie was the widow of Napoleon III and accompanied her husband into exile in England following the Second Empire's defeat in the Franco-Prussian War. Dead at 94, she will be interred with him and their son in the family vault at Farnborough, Hampshire. The last empress is said to have wept when the great virtuoso Liszt, at a private performance in Paris, played Chopin's funeral march. Now it will be played for her. And that's the way of the world, July 1920. A hundred years from today Oh, you know what this music means. Mark's mailbox is on the air. David, a first week founding member from Thornhill, Ontario, where I once fell in love. Uh, no, no, not with David, although I'm sure he's uh, very charming. Anyway, David writes uh, with regard to my recent observations re-Chinese hacking of Nortel's intellectual property, if you remember Nortel. As a Canadian who lost a few shillings on Nortel, it is amusing how naive we were back then that password 1234 would keep the enemies at bay. But if China has taught the world anything, it is that all is fair when it comes to religion, and their religion is money and power. As we sit back and watch the disappearance of Hong Kong with a helpless shrug, we should feel a little dirty. Sure, we can do our part by not buying stuff with a made in China tag but that leaves us with beer and maple syrup so how far is that going to go I don't even know whether that's true David most of the beer tastes so awful I wouldn't be surprised to learn it's recycled bat urine from the Wuhan macro brewery um David says the NBA is going to let its players speak truth to power by allowing messages or slogans on their uniforms. But don't look for a Save Hong Kong or What About the Uyghurs on their shirts. The NBA will only approve BLM and other stuff that won't lose them money. Always follow the money. And right now, everyone's money belongs to China. Uh, yeah, we're being asked to stand up to our loan shark, David, and... Uh, and people always waiting for someone else to take the first step with regard to that. What do you think the Chinese are buying uh, when they do a multi-billion dollar deal with an entirely useless, talentless crackhead like Hunter Biden? Uh, they're buying daddy. They're buying people. And they bought almost all the people who matter throughout the Western world. Um, 
Hong Kong is one of the great achievements of the modern era, and we're letting China kill it because China needs to demonstrate to the world that they're strong enough uh, that they can afford to kill it. In 1997, uh, they were not quite strong enough and they needed it as a conduit between them and the civilised world. Now they own the civilised world. So screw Hong Kong. To go back to what you were saying about money and power, uh, they no longer need Hong Kong as a money conduit to the global economy uh, so they can use it simply to uh, demonstrate their power by crushing it. I don't know what we do about that, but it shouldn't be hard to do something about those wanker owners of American sports franchises uh, that you mentioned and their idiotic proposals for separate national anthems for each identity group before every game. With a bit of luck, there'll be so many they'll have no time for the game. Um, I've always been a bit suspect to the American right because I'm an effete foreigner, so my tastes don't naturally incline to Chick-fil-A, the NFL or NASCAR. But i got to say... You guys are the pansiest pansies in Pansyland. If you're still sitting in your man caves watching any of that crap after what they're doing to you, what's the most basic bit of business advice? KYC, know your customers. These NBA, NFL, NASCAR guys know their customers and they think you're rubes and that you'll continue to blow your dollars on a business masquerading as a sporting endeavor that's insulting you in everything it does. Uh, one advantage of being the uh, only right-wing guy at a matinee of Hello Dolly is that you're entirely inconsequential to its business model, which is to say no camp old theatrical has ever treated me with the contempt that NASCAR and co are treating its customers. Butch Upright is the most important, the most important and valuable thing uh, to the uh, to, to the progressives and the woke Stapo is to destroy and hollow out bastions of masculinity and turn them into something other. You see it happening with the Boy Scouts. You see it happening with the uh, diversity hollowed U.S. military. That's far more important to them than winning another college campus or another NPR affiliate. And so they did it to the Boy Scouts, and they and they did it. It to the military and now they're doing it to all the butchy butch sports you've either got to stop them doing that or you've got to ban abandon those sports and as ann coulter says take up something butcher like ice dancing and now stein online presents mark stein's song of the week Johnny Mandel died last week at the age of 94. He was a great film composer and an arranger without peer. If you've got only time for one album, grab uh, Sinatra Ring-a-Ding-Ding. If you're not figuring on coming out of lockdown for another three months, start with the Count Basie stuff in the 50s and work your way up to Shirley Horn and Diana Krall and Natalie Cole. Unforgettable, a big, uh, big hit for them in the 90s. He was a more fitful songwriter, but he had his moments. This beat out a lot of big-name writers, Bacharach and David, Mancini and Mercer, Michel Legrand, to win him and Paul Francis Webster the Oscar in 1965. The shadow of your smile 
when you are gone will color all my dreams and light the dawn Johnny Mercer said rather cattily that the shadow of your smile sounded to him like a woman with a faint moustache. Uh, but maybe he was on to something. For a while, everyone from Engelbert Humperdinck to Stevie Wonder sang it, and it seemed on the verge of becoming a solid and substantial standard. Uh, but its uh, grip uh, seems a little more tenuous these days. Uh, most of Johnny Mandel's other songs are kept in business by evangelizing singers. Dave Frischberg, a very funny jazz guy, wrote the words to this one. He usually writes his own music, and that's fine for cute lyrics and laugh lines. But for once, he's got a really great tune. In the evening When the kettle's on for tea An old familiar feeling settles over me And it's your face I see and I believe that you are there In a garden When I stop to touch a rose And feel the petals soft and sweet against my nose I smile and I suppose That somehow maybe you are there that's Stacy Kent singing Johnny Mandel and Dave Frischberg. I like that song, but I thought we ought to tip our hat to Johnny Mandel's absolutely no questions asked biggest hit. And it's not something he would have bet on. It begins with the film director Robert Altman, who was having a tough time of it in the late 60s. There was the sci-fi flick countdown uh, from which he was fired because he refused to cut it. And he followed that with a mega bomb that cold day in the park. So when he was offered a black comedy about army doctors, he knew it was his last shot and he couldn't afford to blow it. And he read the novel, which he didn't particularly care for, but he figured that he'd succeed or fail according to how adroitly he walked that fine line between tragedy and comedy. And so to get a sense of whether he could pull off that balancing act, he decided to focus initially on one scene, a scene in which a character called Painless Pole decides he's going to commit suicide and his friends throw him a big dinner with Painless as guest of honour, recumbent in a handsome coffin for a suicide that does not, in fact, occur. And Oldman read the script uh, by Ringlardner Jr., and the scene didn't quite do it for him. He felt it needed something more, specifically a song. So he called Johnny Mandel, and Mandel had scored Cold Day in the Park, the big bomb of a year earlier, and had no desire to work with Altman again, because it had been a couple of years since uh, Shadow of You Smile had won the Oscar, uh, and he figured he couldn't afford to have his career dragged down by yet another Altman flop. And Johnny Mandel liked the assignment even less when Altman told him he wanted Mandel to write, quote, the most stupid song ever written for one of Painless's buddies to sing to him on the guitar. And he gave him the title. 
which is certainly stupid, and at a stroke ensures that Sinatra, Streisand, whoever, are never going to sing your song. But he got to work and he wrote a tune and Robert Altman fitted a lyric to it. And entering into the spirit of the assignment, Johnny Mandel told Altman his lyric wasn't stupid enough. And Altman said, you know, you're right. I'll get my kid to do it. He's gone through a really stupid phase right now. And so Johnny Mandel, a guy who'd written with Johnny Mercer, wound up writing a song with 14-year-old Mike Altman. Here's Ken Primus introducing it to the world as Painless climbs into his coffin in mass. I'll help you. Visions of the things to be The pains that are withheld for me I realize and I can see That suicide is painless It brings on many changes and I can take or leave it if I please. The game of life is hard to play. I'm going to lose it anyway. The losing card I'll someday lay. So this is all I have to say. That suicide is painless It brings on many changes And I can take or leave I'll always remember you just like this Please The only way to win is cheat And lay it down before I'm beat And to another give my seat for that's the only painless feat. A suicide is painless. It brings on many changes. And I can take or leave it if I please. Thrown your whole education away. Well, that's certainly stupid enough, no question. Not only is the title phrase absolutely atrociously rhymed, suicide is painless, it brings on many changes, uh, and I can tell you that suicide is painless is extremely painful uh, for anyone who uh, cares about the integrity of rhyme. But aside from that, the imagery has the indestructibly confident stupidity uh, that only comes with being 14 years old. The sword of time will pierce our skins. It doesn't hurt when it begins. But as it works its way on in, the pain grows stronger. Watch it grin. Uh, Robert Altman had never been prouder of his boy. Johnny Mandel didn't get it and thought Altman had lost his mind when he then said the song was so great he wanted to run it over the opening titles in a very easy listening arrangement because Mandel couldn't figure out what easy listening had to do with war, carnage, bleeding bodies being helicoptered out. 
But it turns out you never know. Suicide is painless. Suicide. It brings on many changes. changes. And I can take or leave it if I please. The sword of time will pierce our skins. It doesn't hurt when it begins. But as it works its way on in. the theme from mash sung by the mash uh, the name johnny mandel gave ron hickling's session singers everyone's heard the ron hickling singers sometime in their life they sang the batman theme and happy days and uh, almost all mcdonald's best commercials the classic ones and backing vocals on i'm a believer and 10 years after they recorded that track 1980 it was a number one record in britain and by that time, the lyric had been kind of forgotten because the song was used instrumentally uh, every week on the long-running sitcom spin-off of MASH, uh, where, as Johnny Mandel once told me, still somewhat mystified, uh, an easy listening arrangement could suit War and Carnage so perfectly that most people, when they think of the theme from MASH, immediately hear the opening chopper blades. Uh, but after the original version hit number one, it turned out that there were a remarkable number of singers eager to sing a song called Suicide is Painless. OK, not Frank, not Tony, not Ella, Barbara, or anyone else Johnny Mandel would have been interested in hearing, but instead Marilyn Manson. Oh, and the Welsh alternative rock band, the Manic Street Preachers. That was number seven on the UK hit parade in 1992. 
The Manic Street preaches, A brave man once requested me to answer questions that are key. Is it to be or not to be? And I replied, Oh, why ask me? Uh, that's um, stupid, but it's also good advice. Ours not to reason why. The only thing more stupid I've heard was a lounge act I caught once, uh, where the guy just did the whole thing in this breezy, swinging, finger-snappy style. Hey, suicide is painless. It brings on many changes. Um... Asked what he wanted in return for that lyric, 14-year-old Mike Altman said he'd like a new guitar. Uh, but the producers uh, were a bit wary about that, and uh, just to nail the song down, they wanted to put him on a regular songwriting contract. The same deal they'd have given Johnny Mercer. And so, one night in the 80s, Robert Altman turned up on The Tonight Show and casually revealed to Johnny Carson that he'd been paid $70,000 for directing MASH, but that his kid had made over a million bucks from the song. <laughs> Robert Altman got a career out of MASH. Afterwards came Nashville, Shortcuts, Gosford Park, all his big films, whereas Mike Altman decided to call it quits after one song. As for Johnny Mandel, many years ago, I checked into the plaza in New York, and a couple of hours later, on my way out to an ASCAP event just across Central Park, in the elevator down from my room, they were playing the theme from MASH, and it was a crowded elevator stopping every floor and uh, so I heard the whole thing. And when I got to ASCAP, the first person I chanced to see when I walked into the rotunda was Johnny Mandel. So I mentioned it to him. Yeah, he said, I'm pretty big in elevators. Well, he was pretty big out of elevators too. From the Manic Street Preachers to Bill Evans. Johnny Mandel. That'll do it for today's show. We had a busy 4th of July weekend at Stein Online, including a hymn to America from a hardcore lefty, and Kathy Shadle on the woman who tried to kill Andy Warhol, and a few thoughts from me on the rise of China, the arrest of Ghislaine Maxwell, and Kevin Spacey at the palace. Hope you'll want to check out some or all of that. Stay safe, stay free.
Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.